Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. I hope you're having a joy-filled morning or evening wherever in the world you're listening to this from. On my side of the microphone, I just wrapped up recording this episode with Buster Benson, who's quite simply one of the most interesting people that I've come across. In this conversation, we get into the meaty questions about his new book that's hitting the shelves this week, called Why Are We Yelling? It's a whimsical and disarmingly powerful case and strategy guide for having what Buster calls productive disagreement. We cover three truths or misconceptions about arguments that he's uncovered, why he loves to eat knowledge, and he coaches me through the process of engaging in a disagreement around climate change. And we talk about some of the the enemies of curiosity and what he calls the voice of possibility. It's, yeah, it's really an amazing conversation. And towards the end, we explore some some fun ground around his his 100th birthday plans, uh, what deathbed points are, and why he took a photo at exactly 8.36 p.m. every single day for almost a decade. Okay, I'm really grateful to share this juicy conversation with the insatiably curious Buster Benson. Hi, Buster. Lovely to have you here. Hello. Yeah, I'm so excited <laughs> to be here as well. Um, these conversations don't usually follow any kind of linear path, but um, as I was preparing for it, it felt like I was at the beginning of this like choose your own adventure game with a thousand possible directions. But what I'd like to start with is the question that I've grown to love, which is, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And could you maybe tell me a story about something that you were curious about? Yeah, curious. I don't know if I was curious in the way that I am now, um, but I was definitely obsessed with things <laughs> mm. and I think there's certain <laughs> maybe they're the same thing but I would get into these obsessions and sort of mm. dive into them really deeply like um, just like certain kinds of books and my imagination I, I once like I would oftentimes just like try to write down all the words I knew or try to capture every animal in my backyard um, and <laughs> ultimately and killing them, <laughs> but, um, but not, not out of, um, I mean, more out of neglect than, than uh, dislike. So um, yeah, I, I would definitely stumble into areas where I felt like I had so much to know and then get lost in that. And another thing I used to do was wake up really early in the morning and my parents had an encyclopedia. They just bought like the world book encyclopedia from like 1983 or something. Mm. And I would just randomly pick one of the books and read it. And that was like my favorite thing to do in the morning. And I know in hindsight, it might seem strange, but I just loved it so much. Mm. Um, so I guess that's counts as curiosity or it's also just, you know, a desire to fill myself with information. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I had one of those giant um, Dorling Kindersley encyclopedias that was my kind of like go-to treasure trove of, it had like pop-outs and amazing illustrations. And I think that was actually like a, a portal for me as well when I was, when I was growing up. Um, were, were there any, any in particular stories or narratives that you felt like really resonated when you were at that age? Um, and I'm just asking in case uh, it, it's kind of some way connected to your life purpose. Out of interest. Yeah, um, you know, I've always been. Obs- I've. Always, I mean, I was raised with my both of my parents being atheists, and mm. I, you know, in my attempt to, and so we had all these conversations about that and about, um, very like my 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 grandparents, I guess, uh, grew up religious and Mormon. Um, and my, on my dad's side and my mom's side was Shinto, but you know, not not as religious. Mm. And uh, so, but I became I became really interested in belief systems pretty early on where we would have dinner and just like poke holes in all the different religions, you know, from their perspective. And then ultimately I ended up going to church a lot and, you know, went to like 10 different churches just as a observer and um, a question asker until like, you know, people got annoyed with all my questions. (laughs) And then that sort of graduated into being obsessed with cults. And this Mm -hmm. is later on, you know, 
from in my twenties, but like going doing the onboarding of every single, you know, inexpensive cult I could find, and until I started charging lots of money, and uh, trying to reverse engineer like what is it about these beliefs systems that make them like resilient to questioning and mm. sort of you know, give people something that they need and. You know, so that's always that, that started pretty early on, and I ultimately was like trying to figure out if they're true or not. But um, I ended up becoming more curious about how they worked. Mm, that's really interesting. I didn't know that about you. Um, well, <clears throat> what kind of strikes me as a as a common thread between a lot of your writing and work is this this kind of deep desire to to really know yourself and to understand your humanness better. And I definitely want to dive into the book that I think is, is about to be released in, in two or three days. But before we do, I'd love to begin with talking about a different book that you haven't finished writing uh, called Your Codex Vitae. And I saw somewhere that you'd, you'd shared that maintaining it has become one of the most treasured activities in your life. So could you share briefly what it is and how it's evolved and, and why it's so meaningful to you? Yeah, I got the idea from... a book by Robin Sloan called um, Mr. Penumbra, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. It's a great book. Um, and the idea is that some there was like this uh, mystical sect in the book that would spend their whole life writing a book. And on their death, there would be two copies made of the book. And one would be added to the library and one would be read once by people. And um, so it was really just like the, the mm. capture everything about your life that you can. And, and that's sort of the output you know, and I was fascinated by that idea. And I thought, well, why can't I do that? You know, GitHub's around. I can, I can start tracking these things. Um, and so that's what I did one Sunday morning. I was just like, okay, I'm going to do this. and write down all my beliefs, sort of in the same vein as like writing down all the words I know. Um, it was really hard, um, but also really rewarding because I didn't have any organizational system. I didn't have any, like, I didn't know what resolution to go through them, where to start, where to end. Like, it was, it was a very wandering path. Um, and, yeah, and so I, I wanted to track them publicly so that as they changed and I, as I aged, I could see like where I gained resolution, where I changed my mind. Mm. Um, and people could also hold me accountable because I'm always afraid of being wishy-washy and sort of doing this mm. classically Martin Bailey kind of, sort of style of life where you have a lot of like, half-formed beliefs that you, don't, mm. or you aren't willing to defend, but you still sort of keep... Um, I would much rather have all of my beliefs be fully defended, you know, even weekly. You know, I can say like I very weakly believe this, so feel free to change my mind about it. But I do have it, um, and I I found that to be a more like grounded way to, you know, in in a, in a world where you know I don't have a belief system that just comes prepackaged. This was mm. my form of a belief system mm. that um, could evolve over time and be resilient and you know ultimately get better um ideally um maybe it gets worse sometimes who knows but in any case mm. it's all public so we can figure it out after the fact <laughs> <laughs> yeah wow and it, it strikes me as being a very brave and almost vulnerable act to to share all of those beliefs out into the public where they can be kind of poked at and criticized and um knowing that presumably many of them will be updated and that you'll kind of be proven wrong at, at some point it's yeah it's it's really inspiring for me um and I guess an, you'll, another you'll notice that like at the very beginning of it is a whole bunch of caveats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. To deal with the vulnerability. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and the meta beliefs and, and all of that. Yeah, no, and, and the structure is fantastic as well. I've I've actually got it on my list of um, side projects to start myself and kind of create my own interpreted. But like you say, it's it's quite a daunting thing to sit down and um, pour your brain out into into one of these. Into one of yeah, these books. yeah, it's very draining. I mean, I think that's the one mm. thing I've learned is that you know most of the time you want to write down a belief and there's nothing there to, to write, <laughs> and so you actually have to form it in the act of writing it down, mm. and that's hard because you got to figure it out. Um, and so I think that's why it's not this viral idea that everyone's picking up and doing on their own because it's 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 like you know it, it takes work, it's, it's exhausting exercise, but also yeah. very fulfilling. Mm. Well, I, I feel like another great example of, your, of this kind of drive to really understand yourself and maybe be less wishy-washy is um, the annual reviews that you've been sharing since I think maybe since you, you turned 30. And these are something that actually, in, it was reading one of yours that inspired me to start writing my own, I think maybe five years ago. And um, I, I, again, just kind of curious what inspired you to, to begin this and 
in what ways have they kind of shifted the trajectory of your life and and, and how's this year of all in flow been been treating you yeah it, it stems from the same um sort of pursuit i think because it, it all began with an attempt to you know this was coming out of my obsession with the cults where i was like i'm gonna mm. try to encapsulate the pieces that you know really resonate with me and try to fit them together into this list of like an extraordinary rules for extraordinary living i think is what i called them in the beginning mm. and it was just like 12 things of like you know one of them is you know don't dilly dally and one of them is like you know you know be the change you want to see in the world you know definitely borrow that one um you know rally people with the vision be, be willing to um, be responsible for the consequences of who you are, um, those kinds of things. Um, and so the yearly review became my yearly reassessment or review of that list, um, along with anything else that might have played into that list changing. And over time, the review and the rules and the belief all became this sort of process that you know, it's important for me to revisit them because that's the whole point is to is to see how they change and to you know be excited about them changing and um, I celebrate that stuff uh, because that's mm. sort of the process of us finding ourselves and um, I don't know just seeing ourselves in an, as growing creatures you know that <laughs> over time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, beautiful. Well. I've just, as as I was, as I mentioned before, we jumped on this on this conversation. I've recently finished reading a book that you have birthed into existence, and it feels to me a little bit like reading a kind of extended and particularly juicy Wait But Why essay that you know hooks you in with the charming illustrations and quirky subheadings, and I, I found it delightful and poetic and hilarious. But reflecting on it um, last night, in particular, I. I think that I've realized it's, it's illuminated my own fairly deeply conditioned conflict avoidance tendencies. Ah, and nice. <laughs> yeah, which I guess is the point, right? Um, and, and I think that I, I guess I learned early on that changing people's minds was, for me at least, almost impossible. And that when I had attempted to do so, it was generally painful. So I never really got any satisfaction from, from being right, even in the times that I did like win these arguments. And so I, I think if I had experienced um, a productive disagreement, it, they've generally been wiped from my, from my memory. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that's you know, the, the realization coming out is that we need to build those experiences up so that we have a memory of them because Ex- exactly. without the memory, we can't, you know, we can't expect it of ourselves and we can't expect it of other people. So, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah exactly. And, and I think the best metaphor that comes to mind um, is actually the one that you used of, this idea of moving a million little rocks from one existing, I guess, conflict avoidant mountain into the um, <laughs> camp of embracing the possibility of this, this gift of disagreement. And I, and I really love that term. And I think that what I, what I also find fascinating about this is that I know that you weren't really an expert on this topic of disagreement when you began writing, and it kind of emerged out of your own research on cognitive biases. But it, it feels like you you know, you deeply, deeply care about some of these ideas in, in your book and you've poured your heart and soul into articulating them. So <laughs> this, this is a, a long-winded way of asking, um, could you walk us through the, the inception of the book and, and how did this yeah. thesis kind of emerge and, and, and maybe what formative events in your life brought you to this belief and desire to explore the, the fuzzy map of argument land that you've, that you've laid out? Yeah, that's, I mean, there it definitely is a journey, you know, all, and all ties together and you can sort of pick out the path after the fact without knowing what it was at the time. Um, mm. So it did come out of this cognitive bias cheat sheet that I made, which was a, an attempt to synthesize the 200 plus cognitive biases that are on Wikipedia's list of cognitive biases page. Mm. Um, and I really wanted to understand it in a way that I could, you know, I mean, I have this feeling sometimes of like there's knowledge somewhere out in the world and I want to eat it. I want it to like become part of my bones. Um, <laughs> and so like spending three weeks just like reading everything, synthesizing, reframing, reframing it, like all this stuff until I really understood it from the inside. Um, mm. That was sort of what led to that thing. And then so I was, someone reached out to me to be like, do you want to write about a book about this after it had gained some like popularity? And I was like, no, I definitely don't. I don't have any time for this. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, you know, but I'm, I'm also just, I'm, I'm obsessed with the process of publishing. You know, I think I am sort of in the back of my mind, there was a part of me that was like, 
plan an escape from the tech industry somehow, just do anything. Um, and so I, I talked to my wife and you know, it's like, I kick it. Is it okay if I do this? Cause I always have the tendency to take on projects that, you know, end up like really disrupting our lives. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and she was all on board. So, um, and she, and, you know, she saw how depressed I was coming out of the election and so it's like mm-hmm. around that time. And it's mm-hmm. like, I, I needed this project. So, cause like mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people write a book to, um, like to, to write, like sort of share their knowledge. For me, it was like, I need to be the person that has this knowledge that can write this book um, so that I don't feel like this anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so cognitive biases led me, you know, the common question that comes out of that line of thinking is like, how do I become less biased? Mm-hmm. And very early on, I realized that that was a terrible question <laughs> and not the one we should be asking. And instead mm-hmm. we should be asking like, why are they useful? When are they useful? When are they not useful? short time after that was that disagreement is the arena where biases are the weapons um you mm. know they're, they're the they're the shield and the and the helmet that we wear to win an argument right. and it's very evolutionarily adaptive to be motivated in your reasoning and to ignore the things that you know you don't want to see and to be overconfident and to you know favor confirming information and to project negative stereotypes on others and all these things are just like sure. suddenly in that light i'm like oh wow yeah that was why, that's sort of why it exists. Um, and it makes sense. And so, but then like arguing, man, that's, that's, that's a thing that exists everywhere. Because cognitive biases, when you bring it up, people are like, oh yeah, very, very theoretical and you know, annoying and academic. <laughs> then you talk yeah. about disagreement and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what my sister did yesterday. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely. So I found it a more approachable topic and, yeah. uh, thought that you know, this is more practical, this is more relatable, this is more fun. And so right. I pivoted to argument um, to sort of show that sequence. It was At first it was called Thinking is Hard. The book was called Thinking is Hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it changed to Arguing is Hard. And you can clearly tell that I'm in charge of the, the titles at this point. And my publisher at some point is <laughs> like, wow, these are, these are really like, these, these, these titles don't make me feel good. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and so she, like my editor, came up with "Why are we yelling?" And I was like, "Ah, that's perfect." Yeah, um, that's really good. And uh, so, it, but it really did just like in slow stages become all about disagreement. And then, mm-hmm. you know, what is productive disagreement in that sense? Like, what are the things we can do to um, not necessarily debias ourselves, but have more productive conversations about things we disagree with mm-hmm. others with? And you know, I thought that that's something that would be tangible like we all want that right so we just don't know how to get it and some of us think it's not possible so mm-hmm. um that was that was my new mission and i i felt like i could sink my teeth, teeth into this and, um, and <laughs> eat it you know and yeah, uh, yeah. and then here i am yeah 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 wow wow and i can um i i love that it almost i have an image of you like literally eating and, and devouring all of this knowledge and, and it brings to mind this this quote of mine or that, that i love that this idea of knowledge is only a rumor until it lives in the muscle and it feels to me like you you found this way to um to take these maybe more lofty abstract ideas and make them really concrete and make make them really real for people in in their lives um yeah. and i suppose yeah, my the, the experience of arguing that's like you know yes yeah, yeah. and the experience of anxiety and the experience of of like being frustrated and stuck like those are things that you know that you're not going to find that in a book about rhetoric or you know, sales. So yeah, it's it's meaty. It's it's really really meaty. <laughs> and <laughs> I I think that the I guess the goal for um for this part of the conversation, I'd love to just get listeners curious enough about the theses of your book to go out there and, and buy it for themselves. And and I know this is audio, so we don't have the luxury of being able to um, show the whimsical illustrations that are are dotted throughout all of the chapters. But imagining that um, many of the people listening who like me might be conflict resistant certainly at times um could we start with you outlining the three the three truths or misconceptions mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. arguments that you've uncovered yeah yeah um so the three misconceptions i would say and then the three truths that sort of follow out of that are that arguments are bad so the first thing we we, we know that they're not necessarily bad but instinctively and emotionally we respond to them as if they are bad and we oftentimes even the even the word conflict resolution right it's about resolving ending it you know finishing it right. making it go away right. um and so we think that they're bad and they're not bad they're you know they are 
they can be good or bad. They can be productive or unproductive. And I wanted to shift from good and bad to productive and unproductive as a better way to frame it. Because we can have something, we can, we can make unproductive disagreements productive and therefore influence the moral judgment of them, even emotionally. Um, the second one is um, that arguments can change minds. And I think this is you know, the one that people also rationally know. Um, mm-hmm that they can't really change. I mean, they feel this feeling like, oh yeah, there's no point in arguing because I'm not going to change your mind and you're not going to change my mind. And that's their excuse for not having the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also another way to see it. You know, the fact that they don't end is, is great. You know, they, and the, the fact that you can't change minds is great also because what ends up happening is you have to jump into it, you know, like it's a dance or a, um, you know, a crucible or a chrysalis or like these different things where mm-hmm. you're not, you can't be the unmoved mover and like push someone's opinion over there without being affected yourself. You have to right. jump into it, get messy, sort of become part of the relationship and the relationship sort of knowledge can expand. And um, uh, yeah. that was one, a different way to shift it where like you don't have to think about it as like this utility that you use to move person, a person's mind from point A to point B there's a lot more fruit to a disagreement, which we can go into if, um, if there's time at some point. Um, and then the third one is um, that arguments end. You know, arguments don't end. And this is apparent whenever you ask someone, you know, in a relationship, you know, like, what are the things you argue about? And you're like, oh my God, it's always these three things or always this one thing. And it's, that's true, right? It's always the same. You just have the same arguments over and over and over. Um, and, this, and I use the analogy of weeds in a garden. Like you don't, you, weeds come back. They always come back. Um, they're part of the garden, you know, they do with, they actually have a function in the garden too, to you know, bring nutrients up from deep in the soil. They're the things that live in the garden without you wanting them to, <laughs> whereas everything else is like needs you a little bit more. Um, and so it has a function in the fact that like it's pulling things up that are hidden. And mm-hmm. it's really important to think of arguments as an opportunity to pinpoint our values, pinpoint our preferences, pinpoint problems, um, and to use them as these opportunities to um, re-engage in the important things, and to not see that it's like a failure if the you know it goes doesn't go away and it comes back again, because mm. you know that's it's just a, you know first of all you just have to accept it because that's what happens, but second <laughs> of all, um, you know it's it's a good thing. It's part of what brings the energy and the emotion and the passion into a relationship. Mm. If, if you never argue, like. Is that really a good relationship? It's probably going to be really dull if you, have, <laughs> if you agree about everything, right? So, yeah, those are yeah, the three yeah. misconceptions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, what what came to mind as as you were describing those? There's the um, the image of James Cass's or, or his idea of finite and infinite games. And I mm-hmm. feel like you're almost painting a picture of like the way that most of us think of arguing as being almost like on the finite level where you can yeah. win or lose and, it, and there's a fixed ending point. But what it feels yeah. to me like you're describing is that we can move into a more productive realm when we shift into that kind of infinite game context. Absolutely. And that's, yeah. that's, where the, that's where the learnings are. Yeah, the perfect thing about infinite games and wicked problems and all these things that are like unbounded is that you don't know if you're the good guy or the bad guy. You don't know if you're... You, but you do know that you know something is mysterious and unknown and yeah. you can actually use that as a as a trailhead for curiosity for uh, new possibilities for learning for connection all these other things that you know you actually really want those things in your life so right. um, uh, you know if it's just about winning a game of tic-tac-toe um, you know you're gonna get bored really quick luckily they're a lot more gnarly than that <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um, and one of my, f- or one of the frameworks that I that I, th- I think really stuck with me. Um, I guess it's maybe more of a lens, but it's this idea of the three different areas and questions that uh, you say immediately lead to more productive disagreements. And I've seen you kind of using them in Twitter experiments and through your newsletter. Could you talk a little bit about what they are and how they can <clears throat> potentially completely reframe an, an argument? Yeah. So I think of the three realms of of conflict as the realm of the head, the realm of the heart, and the realm of the hands. Uh, and the way that I distinguish them is by, you know, what do you do to um, validate an argument within that realm? And is, you know, and, and you can often use the way to validate it as a way to re- locate it in one of the realms itself, because it's sometimes hard. Mm-hmm. So the head is, 
you know, validated, you know, a conflict of the head or is, is about information. It's like something that you can go out and find an external source of truth about and look it up in the dictionary, you know, ask a person what they actually think, you know, these things that you can just go out and find the answer immediately. Um, and we oftentimes, you know, I think our instincts make us think that almost all arguments are in this realm, but yeah, uh, stuff that we can Google. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's go, like, let's go look it up. Let's go check out the data and you yeah. know, whoever has the better evidence wins. Sure. Um, and, you know, I found that that's, you know, barely ever the actual <laughs> realm that an argument is in, but mm-hmm. sometimes, um, and so the realm of the heart is about values, beliefs, uh, judgment, uh, what's important, um, what you prefer. And this is where most of them really are. You know, even if you're arguing about data, what you're really arguing about is that it's important to care about the data. Mm. Um, so if it's like, it's important to care about uh, the fact that, um, you know, mass shootings are happening in schools, it's important to care about the fact there's children in cages. You don't need the evidence to prove that. In fact, the evidence doesn't prove it. It just supports, you know, the story about why it's important to you, mm-hmm. but it's not going to convince people that don't think it's important. You know, the thing that changes your your opinion about what's important is personal stories, our, you know, anecdotes, um, formative events, perspectives, new worldviews. Um, and that's why we need each other to, t- to ask questions about the, the subjective, you know, experience of having a belief um, a lot of the time as a way to shift it from the, heart, the head to the heart mm. and to just recognize that that's really where it's happening. Um, mm-hmm. And then the third one is the hands, which is the hardest one to explain, but um, really, really important because the hands are about what is useful. So you've got these values, you've got these beliefs, and you have this information. What do you think should be done with this? And what do you think will, ha- be ha- will happen when you do it? Right? Mm-hmm. And this is great because unlike the, the realm of the heart, you, can't, you can resolve this one. You can actually make progress. What I advocate for often is don't just people and build a relationship. But at some point, you got to pivot to the hands and say, like, okay, given what we know, what do we think is the best path forward? What can we do to test, you know, my beliefs and your beliefs and, and actually learn from what happens? Because even if whatever we do fails to do what we thought it would do, mm-hmm. we've done something so that we, and we've learned from it. And we can learn from our failures as well as our, as our, um, our successes. And, you know, this is the way of learning about who's better at predicting the future. It's a way of learning whether or not their values are, you know, more adaptive to the problems than yours are. Um, but it also just like gets you unlocked from that back and forth about like, you know, this is more important. No, this is less important um, mm-hmm. into like, okay, let's do something. And then let's talk about what happens. When it happens. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's, that's so, it's so powerful. And what, what comes up as you were, sharing that process is it's almost it almost feels like the journey of writing this book has been going from the head to the heart into the hand and it started maybe it started with the the heady idea of the cognitive biases and into like why do you care about this and what really yeah. resonates with people and now through your newsletter you've been <laughs> yeah you've been doing all these experiments like okay i've made these frameworks like do they work how can i how can we talk about gun control how can we use this in the public sphere um yeah yeah, it, it feels really, really powerful. Um, I, yeah, the, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, this is one of the fears people have about talking about productive disagreement because the fear is that you will waste a lot of time. You know, if, if the only thing you can do is just compare stories about, you know, why I have this belief and why you have that belief and, you know, why I'm different than you, um, you know, what, what, is, what is the result? I mean, you do, you can build that relationship, but most of the time you're in a high pressure, more urgent situation where it, yeah you know, time isn't infinite, an infinite resource, you know, as for the reason like we have all these biases to get us into action. Um, and so oftentimes the best productive disagreement is a shorter one that is like, okay, let's stop talking about the heart stuff. And, you know, we, we could sort of see each other's viewpoints, but let's like do something and move forward. Um, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I talked about this where like people get stuck arguing at the gate about what's important when really mm-hmm. they should be going through the gate and doing things and learning from that stuff. Mm-hmm and trying mm. to solve the problems, even if they're not important to both parties. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really powerful. Um, <clears throat> and another one of the ideas that was well, a bit of a aha moment for me was when you describe the idea of the, the shadow realm, where sometimes we think we're disagreeing with someone, but we don't realize that we're actually arguing with a shadow projection of our own fears and imaginings. And mm-hmm. this led me to thinking about 
the idea of internal family systems and how many of our personal frustrations stem from um, almost inner disagreements between those different parts of ourselves. And so I was wondering if some of the suggestions that you've included could be used to help navigate internal difficult decisions when we feel torn in some way. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, that chapter, uh, the chapter about talking to your internal voices pulls heavily from internal family systems theory. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea that, you know, there there are people out there that you disagree with, but most of the time you're not actually talking to them. You're talking to your internal mental model of them that you like right. that has all your stereotypes and characterizations, and you put the words in their mouths and you put the intents in their heads, and then you yep. you know you beat them up. Um, yep. So, you know, there's a huge amount of research. You know, I barely even scratched the surface with this about like, you know, how do we learn to integrate our shadow and how do we learn to like speak to the voices that are trying to protect us from getting hurt or that are trying to you know, um, you know, that are just maladapted to happiness <laughs> for some reason or another. Um, and, you know, learn to like let our protectors, you know, relax a little bit so that we can actually go out and talk to people and not just hide in our rooms and, you know, imagine monsters and argue with them all day long. So, uh, you know, just speaking from, you know, <laughs> not from, yeah, definitely from experience there. So, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a powerful metaphor to think about, um, you know, what is Trump? Um, you know, part, I mean, I love the interview with David White where like, you know, Trump is us. You know, there's, you know, most of us are talking to Trump in our head. We're not talking to the Trump in real life. Um, you know, what is, like, who are the radical left and the radical right? Like they, those are groups that don't exist. They are, you know, um, agents that we've conjured up in our heads and we argue with them all day long and we argue with them about them with each other, oftentimes with people that have the same, you know, um, projection in their own head and we refine it and we make it more and more evil and then we get you know, more and more mad about it and mm. um, meanwhile we're not talking to them uh, we're not talking to anybody on those that like make up the, the the cloud of people that you know sort of we're projecting the shadow onto so yeah mm. that's it's definitely a <laughs> a, do- a long long topic to, to think about mm. yeah yeah it's so it's, yeah, it's so powerful um Wow. Okay. Well, one one of the other, I, well, I guess a big chunk of your book is devoted to the the eight strategies, uh, kind of like an, an eightfold path that you've developed towards having, <laughs> yeah, but not nearly as as, as uh, not, not quite as yeah, <laughs> slightly more quirky with more with more whimsical illustrations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and part of me would actually love to just read the entire thing and release it as like a ten hour podcast episode, but I feel like your publishers might begin a productive disagreement with me if I was to try and do so. Um, so instead, I, I thought, let's perhaps say that I have a, a friend who may or may not exist in real life, who made the, the moral decision to not fly on any planes because of the, the carbon impact. And mm-hmm. we've, we've talked about this quite a lot. And she believes that um, kind of using guilt is the only way to to shame people into acting on behalf of the planet. And we've, yeah, we've talked about this at length, but I'm not sure how productive our conversations were necessarily. So I guess I'd love to ask, how might you coach me or or someone similar to me through the process of navigating this quite delicate and quite personal disagreement using some of the, some of the strategies? Yeah, this is a good one. Um, So I would use the pattern that I, I used in the gun control debate, which is to think about the end game. Like, what is the end game for your friend? You know, what what would the evidence in the world be such that like the strategy of you know shaming people into not flying in airplanes has worked? Mm-hmm. Right? Is it that there are no airplanes anymore that we don't travel anymore? Is it that we travel less? Is it that we use other modes? Or do we use trains? Do we use um, mm-hmm. do we do cities um, become more condensed because we travel less? Do we end up, you know, pretty virtual spaces? So that could be a whole conversation right there. Like, no, let's just imagine the world first that we're trying to get to, um, and like add all the detail and the creative. Like, let's, let's just be creative about, you know, what are the second order effects of this change? Like, imagine that everything just goes like perfectly, um, and you know, what would what would happen? Like, is that a world that we, you know, after filling it out, is the world that we want to be in? Um, right. Because that's great. Because then you can embody that like that vision, yep. um, and you could probably share it with her and um, have a lot of like a, 
entirely pleasant conversation, probably enjoyable, like sort of building this up. So that's step one. And then step two is, okay, well, let's, how is that world different from this world? What are the, what are the, you know, the data points or the pieces of evidence that we could look at that would have to change? You know, like, is it like number of flights per year or is it, um, you know, flights per person um, per year, or is it you know, the efficiency of airplanes or um, what are the, you know, just like find something that's like, okay, what's, what's like a good proxy. Um, and then say like, okay, well that's, that's the path, right? Um, how do we get there? And how do we like, what are, what are the short term and the long term strategies that could get us there? And how long is, are we expecting this to happen? Um, and that's when the fun part comes in because you can say, you know, okay, let's assume that we're just, we're trying to make these numbers move. What other what are the strategies we could use? Is shaming and shaming is one of them. Um, so so are but there's also a hundred other ones, right? Mm-hmm. The brainstorm sort of session to come up with all kinds of ways to move that number. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it might turn out that you know, if, is there data that shows that shaming people actually changes their behavior? If there isn't, is it possible that the, that strategy? isn't the most effective one. Like what other strategies do we, can we look at that might be more effective? Would you be willing to switch to a strategy that was more effective if it was different, you know? Right, um, right. Or you might end up finding that there is evidence that shaming people, you know, works. And that would be really interesting to understand. Like, is it sustainable? Does it happen? You know, what is what are the tactics? You know, how long, how do we know how long the effects last and that kind of thing? Mm. Um, but again, like each of these stages can be collaborative. Um, and non-confrontational mm-hmm. in the sense of like you're not really trying to change your mind and, and she has an opportunity to change your mind by talking about these things um, mm-hmm. but it's just way more enjoyable you learn a lot, lot more about what she actually envisions and you probably mm-hmm. build a relationship you know around like this now you have like this imaginative world that you know has been created between you and you you have this like you know more more symbols more metaphors more words um, to talk about this with um, with her with so that's that's the the I guess three step thing um, that I would do, and you know you could probably spend you know days and weeks on even step one. So it's not really about um, doing this all in a half an hour, uh, yep. but it's the you know hey we're friends we're gonna be friends for a long time. Let's I want to unpack this. Let's like yep. let's really dive into it and like figure this out and build a shared language around it. Mm. And see where it goes. Yeah, that's that's the that's the key move. That's like the Jedi, the Jedi warrior move right there. And I, actually one of my favorite parts of the whole book, which might not come as a surprise to you, but <clears throat> it was the section on learning how to ask your questions and particularly those that invite surprising answers. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you wrote, uh, I've got a quote here that the questions we ask help, help us build our own map of the other person's perspective. We're not trying to sink a person's battleship with yes or no questions but to understand them better and create a map of their full set of beliefs, motivations, and knowledge, which requires a genuine curiosity in where they're coming from. And some of the questions that I loved were, what would have to be true for you to change your mind about this? And what's really at stake here? And I, I really love these. And could you, um, could you speak a little bit to this and, and maybe how we might move to inhabit that place of radical curiosity where I can say to my friend, let's, you know, let's sit down and really get curious about each other's worldviews. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we have a shared appreciation for some people who are great questioners, um, you know, David White and uh, Christian mm-hmm. Tippett and yep, yep. Um, you know, Roque. And I, like, there's a, such a great tradition of question asking and beautiful questions and living the question, all these things because, like, you know, they are so powerful. Um, and I love the quote about, uh, you know, great and great questions inspire great answers right and mm-hmm. if we want to have great answers we need to ask great questions and the way that i you bootstrap this is through enjoyment i think because hmm. again when you ask a good question the answers you get are surprising surprising things are enjoyable they, they, it's because they contain a little bit of insight. They contain a little bit of um, sort of connection. They contain a little bit of surprise. I mean, it's just like, that's what makes games exciting. That's what makes life exciting is yeah, to be surprised, surprised, you know, get a new puzzle piece that fits into your world. Yeah. Um, and Great so, surprise, as David White says. Right. And so the, the the way that I sort of build up the skill is by, you know, trying it. And the, the great, the good thing about questions is that, 
you don't need to know a lot to ask a great question. In fact, the less you know, the better. You can just write that's, these that's why questions. I love podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? You can just write yeah. the same 10 questions on your hand and just like ask people and see what happens. Yeah. You don't need to have the most cutting, like, you know, piece of evidence that's going to dismantle the other side's argument. You could just mm-hmm. be like, oh my gosh, my blood rate is, you know, my heart rate is, you know, 150 and, you know, I can't think. My brain is offline right now. You could look at your hand and be like, okay, what am I missing about your beliefs that you think would help me understand your view? (laughs) And you can just literally ask that and get an answer. And it does a double, does two things. It gives your brain a chance to um, calm down uh, Mm -hmm. if you're feeling sort of heated. And it gives them a giant open space to wander around in. A a fight can't happen in a giant field. So you have to build the giant field Hmm. and let them run their side and run to their side and like yeah, you're gonna yeah, wander yeah. over there and yeah. you're not gonna you're gonna stop fighting you're gonna start like about like just running around and, and telling mm-hmm. stories and then both of you can sort of find that rhythm of like you know how do we how do we want to talk to each other what are the words that we can use mm-hmm. once your heart rates come down a little bit um yeah so yeah i think that's the key part yeah, and, and then it that, feels like a magic spell, right? And you feel like, why did I, how did I do that? Like, I gotta do that again, uh, and so you want to do it again. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that that wizardry is um is really wrapped up in that that question of what other possibilities might we be missing, um that would change how we thought about this. And yeah, I really love that idea of the the voice of possibility, and perhaps a que- or a question that I've been thinking about is is what are some of the the enemies to that voice and how do we almost give it permission to surface in that moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the enemy of the voice of possibility is, is, is fear. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you feel threatened, if you feel like you're in danger, if you feel like, you know, anything that triggers the, um, the fight or flight response, anything that triggers the, anything that triggers you, period, you know, all those things are um, going to just take your brain offline and, and not, not let you, you know, expose yourself in with a question or like, you know, right. there's that fear of like, if I, if I put myself out there, they're going to stomp on me and, you know, and, and uh, you know, that's just not a way that our brain can function. And so there's a lot of you know studies around these different sort of modes our body can be in some of them are you know going to be open and many of them are going to be closed mm. so you have to that's why it's not, I, re, I really can't don't think it's enough to resort purely to rationality or purely to persuasion or purely to knowledge mm-hmm. because this is physical it's about and it's not even just about our body it's about the room it's about who else is in the room it's about the culture that the room has it's about the patterns and the history of that room and the space and the the city and the world that you have in your head, it just extends in outward concentric circles all the way to the end of the universe where it's like all of these things influence whether or not I feel safe right now. Um, And obviously you can't change all that, but you can move yourself to other places and slowly begin to um, build places to have the qualities that, that make it neutral, that make it safe, that make it possible to have, to listen to that voice of possibility because it is the quietest voice. It's the one that, you know, we actually don't you know, all come pre-installed with. It's the one that we have to build up ourselves versus like the voice of power is like, you know, in our blood from, you know, being amoebas probably. And the voice of reason has been with us since we were humans. And the voice of avoidance is like also just like the flight. So like those are yeah. all evolutionarily like really hardwired. Yeah. And we haven't really practiced the fourth one. Mm, yeah, that's that's really interesting. And what what comes up to me is that they almost feel different in my body. Like I, I think I have a felt sense of where I'm when I'm feeling certain about something, it feels kind of stable and secure and, and maybe a little bit tense as well. But I think when I it almost requires softening into that space of uncertainty and saying, like, maybe I don't have all of the the pieces of this puzzle. And it's from that kind of softer place that I think the these more curious, maybe quieter questions can emerge. But I, I think we're so, we're, we're almost rewarded at school for like giving the correct answers and for having certainty and, and for winning arguments. And I think letting go of, letting go of that is actually quite a, a vulnerable act in some ways. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the, all of our institutions have been built with the voice of reason and they're about certainty. They're about uh, appealing to higher authorities. They're about, 
um, like sort of structuring groups to be aligned and to not question, right? So, uh, you know, they've served us well, but they don't serve us when we're trying to reach out across tribal lines or we're trying to explore spaces that we haven't explored before. Um, so it's a relatively new experience to be able to talk to someone on the other side of the world that you've never met about something that, you know, you know, didn't have zero cost to it and zero reason to right. do so. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, it's a diff different forum. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, well, in the, in the spirit of grateful surprise, um, I have uh, a few relatively rapid fire questions um, and feel free to just, just give super short answers or longer answers or whatever, whatever feels relevant. Um, okay. So the first one is, where do you intend to cycle on your 100th birthday in 2017? <laughs> <laughs> this is my goal um, in life, is to ride my bike around the block on my 100th birthday. So okay. wherever I happen to live, hopefully on a short block, um, I'm going to ride around the block. <laughs> That's my goal. <laughs> okay, amazing. If it's, if it's out in uh, the wilderness, I guess it'll be around... Uh, right, I'll make a block, yeah. Around the fields, make a block, yeah. <laughs> Great, okay. Um, <laughs> All right, question number two. What are deathbed points and how could I win some? <laughs> yeah, so a deathbed point is, you know, I think we all have heard this anecdote about, you know, dying regrets. You know, if you ask people on their deathbed what they regret, they always sort of mention the same kinds of things. Like, I didn't, you know, I cared too much about unimportant things or I never, you know, I never repaired my relationship with my parents or, you know, I didn't, I didn't let myself stray from the path, you know, all these things. Um, and so a deathbed point is, is basically um, being able to, like doing something today that you don't regret on your deathbed. Um, and so that requires two things. One of them is that you remember it. <laughs> and the other one is that it's not against that, you know, that future mind that is going to see your whole life differently. Um, and it's more, you know, um, you know, the eulogy uh, virtues that David Brooks talks about versus the resume virtues. Like, you know, the, the things that you, know, you talk about at a, at a funeral are very different than the things you talk about during an interview. Mm. And, um, you know, the, ultimately, the things that we talk about at a funeral are the ones that, you know, they're the last say. And <laughs> ultimately, mm. the things that we end up caring about and that speak most to our sense of self. So, mm. you know, I often think I, I tried to do this for a while. It doesn't really work, but you know, I'm obsessed with quality time. Like I want quality time with myself. I want quality time with others and I want quality time with my interests. And mm. so I was using this deathbed point system to be like, okay, if I'm having quality time, I feel like there's no way that I'll regret this uh, later on. And, you know, unfortunately the act of tracking it and thinking about it in that way sort of pops you out of it. So it's mm -hmm. kind of productive, but, um, the idea of being like, you know, let's just foster quality time with each other. And you can't really game that. You can't really use that for evil, <laughs> as far as I can tell. <laughs> you know, almost all other goals can be used for evil. So, mm, mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, that's, it's so, so interesting. I was actually, just before we jumped on this call, um, I was talking to someone on Twitter about the idea of writing your own eulogy. And she, she called them, like, uh, her first version was like a, retro, a retroactive CV. And what came to mind for me was um, actually something that David White talks about. He says when you're in a, uh, a memorial or listening to someone's eulogy, the room is still very cold when people read the list of achievements and things that they've done, but it kind of quickens when people talk about what they loved and how generous they were and, and maybe how much you know, quality time they have. And it's, it's so interesting that we spend so much of our waking energy on the, on the achievements in the former. And we don't think that totally. And isn't it interesting? Have you been to any funerals where they talked about how annoying the person was? Yes, <laughs> that, that happens. And for some reason, yeah. that is one of the things that we cherish at the end of our lives, and that we yeah. cherish about each other. And again, right. that brings us back to disagreement. It's like yeah, you know, people yeah, that yeah. you know are truly themselves, and I can like are stubborn. You know, like that's <laughs> actually a virtue if we lean into it, um, and we, yeah. we love it about each other. So we don't want to go away. Yeah, that's so true. I had not thought about that before. Hmm. Okay, so question number three. Why did you start taking a photo at 8.36 p.m. every day for several years? And what was your biggest lesson from the process? Yeah, so it was totally like, like many of my projects of a complete whim. I remember someone uh, named Chadwick said, like, I'm going to take a picture at 8.36 every day for a week. 
And I saw that it was like probably 2003, maybe 2000, no, it was 2006, 2006. Um, and I was like, I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I started doing it. It was before like our phones could even take photos. So I was doing this wow. by like uploading it to Flickr. Um, and uh, and then eventually Twitter came around and I started tweeting it. And then Instagram came along and we started doing it on there. Um, and then, you know, because this is a silly ritual, you know, lots of other people um, hopped on the bandwagon and started doing this. And so there's this whole crew of people that's to this day still do it. And if you just like search for the hashtag, you'll see everyone. And like half of the people are people I don't even know. So. Um, it's just, I liked it because I also heard it. So there, there's this, I wrote a post about this once where it's like the, the, like just the impossible dream kind of like goals where you just, there's no way for you to actually succeed at them are, are my favorite kind because yeah, they just yeah, yeah. provide per pressure, um, to do them. And, you know, you don't really worry about achieving them. You just worry about, you know, doing them and, it's a sort of a theme through a lot of my projects. It's like this, just focus on the doing and not the having or achieving or, you know, that part. Um, so that's what started. And I, what was the surprising thing that I learned is, I mean, I was just surprised that I did it for so long. Um, <laughs> I stopped doing it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like probably like, you know, 10 years plus. And I, I, I'll probably go back to it just like right now. Um, I'm not doing it. I don't know why but I'll probably go back to it. And there's this great um, person, Jonathan Livingston, who took a Polaroid every day for 30 years up, up to the day he died. And like, there was this exhibit of his work, of his photos that I read about. And I was like, yeah, that's just like, you know, that's the, that's the story of his life, even though he didn't know he was writing it. Um, and so again, like you're sort of getting after the fact, you can connect the dots, but while you're in the dots, you don't see it. Right? And uh, I love that stuff. It also helps like reduce the polish and the curation of my yeah. social feeds. So I like right. that too. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. All of that sort of somehow is a confluence of things that made it resonate with people, including myself. Yeah. 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 It, it also reminded me of the, you've got a comic on your website of um, the story of Sisyphus and it feels like you've kind of embraced that as part of your kind of life philosophy. Mm -hmm. It's like be Sisyphus, but be, happy while you're while you're doing yeah. It. yeah yeah there is a like post meaning i think you know happiness uh to, to be found and you know it's, it's hard to, to like articulate but it's there mm. and i'd like to find things that remind me of it mm. okay question number four um last question this is turning your question back on you if you were to imagine a world in which everyone feels comfortable inviting in their voice of curiosity during conflict, how did we get there? We definitely got there by accident. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but I do think that, so unlike, um, I do think about this a lot, which is there is a, you know, we have these, behaviors in our life that by doing them they change us and we don't know how they're changing us and it's sort of the thing that we've been talking about of like you know i think by having conversations we are changed we don't know in which way um and then by the time we are changed we see the past differently and we can see the future differently and for me the most important thing to like help us get to this world where we can all experience productive disagreement is that we have to experience it in really small like um, places first. So like, luckily we're all having lots of conversations every day. Um, pick one that's sort of like your matches your skill level to the difficulty level and, and, and try it out and sort of approach it like an art or approach it like exercise or approach it like practice, like whatever one of those metaphors resonates. And, you know, think about, okay, was that too easy? Did I, could I push myself further next time? Can I, or what, what did I push myself too far? You know, I definitely had a few arguments along the path with this book that, you know, I was pushing myself way beyond my skill level and mm -hmm. I fumbled and I and caused some harm. So you, you could, there's, you know, you have to find that flow zone, but once we do, and I think this happens for me fairly quickly where, you know, no disagreement now feels intimidating to me. Um, if I can, mm -hmm approach it you know wow. starts from the from the very beginning um in the right mindset and you know if i can get there in two years or three years i think we can all get there and 
as soon as you have this perspective, like, oh yeah, I, I now have like an embodied feeling of like what it means to talk to someone that I once considered to be like my mortal enemy mm. about something that I thought, you know, I could never talk to them about. I can then expect that from other people. I can, I can mentor other people. I can, I can expect it of my politicians. I can expect it of my bosses. I can expect it of our leaders. And that expectation is part of what we need to do to pass the meme on, I guess, or pass the practice on and let it sort of grow from there. So like, if, it, if it happens at all, it would happen through this like bottoms up mm. for a feeling of like, we all know it, you know, so there are things that like, just, like spread through our culture very quickly. We all now know what it's like to post photos on the internet, you know, constantly. Um, yeah. There was a time not too long ago where we didn't know that we were actually intimidated by it, but now we feel like it's the coolest, most natural thing. So um, same thing with like talking on a phone while you're walking down a sidewalk. So there are ways for us to change our mind collectively as a culture, as a world that um, don't, they aren't like the primary purpose of the behavior, but they're the side effect and that side effect reinforces itself Hmm. and spreads. So um, that's sort of what I mean by accidental is that it would be a side effect of, of some kind of new ritual that we that that caught on um hopefully mm. um you know something simple like having having one or two disagreements that go well <laughs> <laughs> mm. and what have been um one final question what have been some of the most productive or successful experiments in this area that you've that you've run so far i, I know a few of them haven't necessarily gone exactly to plan but what are the ones that feel like they've they've worked in I'm, some way yeah, I'm really enjoying Letter.Wiki right now. Um, mm, I had a conversation yeah, with BJ Campbell about gun control. It uh, went really well. And I'm having another conversation with Iona Italia. It's, like, it's just a fantastic writer um, about now it's sort of moving into um, social justice and white fragility, which is going to be really intense, I think. And um, sure. you know, I might get destroyed by this conversation, <laughs> but I know. <laughs> um, I'm really excited about it because it's it is definitely one of those that I was I've, I've you know I've reserved as like a really really hard one for me to have because as a yeah. white you know privileged person it's really hard to talk about racism and privilege um, without you know pissing off somebody so um, and or or like stumbling on my toe uh, on myself tripping on myself and like falling on my face so yeah. um, I'm excited about that and. Um, and then another thing that I've done, which is I recommend if you're into this, is join a bunch of Facebook groups that are filled with people that have a completely different belief system as you. Hmm. Lurk for a long time, sort of get a sense for the aesthetic of the group, and then start participating as yourself um, in a respectful way. And try to see if you can become like the first person on the other side that they respect. You know, I'm in this libertarian, like very anti, very non-liberal, progressive kind of. Um, sort of demographic and you know after a year and a half now we're all able to argue really productively um, at first I got pounded you know for several months for my views <laughs> but like we've we've worked through it all and um, now we're like oh yeah even though we disagree we we like we will we'll still like have these really productive conversations mm. so there's a lot of different venues for this um, you know I tried to building a discourse group I have a discord group as well um, so there's no end of places where conversation can happen. So I would, mm. you know, I, I don't even think that it's necessary to be too picky. Um, just look, look for what's available and pick one of them. Yeah, that's, that's brave. And have you, have you found, um, I mean, my sense is that these would be easier to have in person as opposed to where you're either not, not anonymous, but somewhere like Facebook or Twitter where people feel, um, less uh restrained let's say mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think you know i would say twitter and facebook are like advanced level of difficulty so <laughs> yeah. you don't do that one first but you level can work 10. your way up yeah, yeah. and yeah. at first in, I, mean, I did this with gun control wreck the first three i tried all failed and you know the one that did work was the potluck you know inviting people into my house and eating food and, nice. and talking about this really worked and i said oh yeah okay so at least i could always fall back on that like if I if I can't figure it out, I can I can have a potluck. Um, but I you know since then I've been able to have them in all kinds of online spaces as well. It's just it requires um, you know just that that progression of personal development, I guess, where the things that were scary you learn how to to work through them. Um, and 
and you could take on bigger challenges. But I definitely don't think, I know that that's part of the problem is that we're all thrown into Twitter thinking that it's just like this place to, to like shout into the void, but it turns out that people are on their side and they're going to, and you're actually making them dislike you more and they're making you dislike them more. And the side effects again are spiraling in the wrong direction, causing yeah. us all to like just polarize and stop talking to each other, which is you know, terrifying yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very brave, but very important, very important work. Um, well, I want to be um, respectful of your time, as I know it's pretty late over there. And I'll obviously be including links to your website, the Substack, Twitter, and obviously the book itself. But where would Can be... I ask you one question? Yeah, sure. Fire away. Okay. I want to hear. I want. I just want a little bit of more detail about the thing you mentioned in the beginning, which is um, about how it um, sort of opened up your awareness around conflict avoidance. Like, what is? Where's? Where are you right now on that? Um, and what are your thoughts in terms of, you know, that question? Like, is it is it important to, like, when is conflict avoidance helpful, and um, mm. is it always helpful? And has your, you know, where where do you just sit on that? right now hmm. <laughs> yeah really good question um i think that i think like i said kind of traditionally i have been um maybe i have probably got into a few arguments when i was younger that just ended really badly and that i felt like often ended ended up with anger and i think that as soon as something got into that realm i just kind of shut down and I think um, I'd almost rather be perceived as wrong than potentially damaging a, a relationship or a friendship. And so I think I kind of inherited this idea of um, it's maybe safer to to avoid when it when like a potentially important relationship is at stake. Um, and I think that's actually pissed off a lot of people, <laughs> well, especially when I was younger. Um, I know my to give an example, my co-founder at Maptia was. Um, she was very gung-ho in terms of working through disagreements. And I think it would really frustrate her looking back sometimes when I would just um, almost shut down sometimes and not engage. And, and, it, it, and she, she would kind of put forward this position that she would be, appear to be certain on when in fact she wasn't. But it took me a while to realize that actually this was just her way of working through some of the problems. And, and I think that in particular, for me, what is interesting is is the times when i do feel triggered by something it's like that is a really powerful opportunity for my own self-reflection and, and inquiring as to like what about this made me feel frustrated or what about it made me feel um, angry or hurt and um asking what projections i'm putting on the other people um and, and just i think like you said it's 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 this idea that the world can become bigger when you when you're able to step into that that messy space um and there's a lot to be learned from appreciating the contrast um and and it almost takes some of that fire and it takes some of the energy to to kind of churn up the stuff that you didn't really realize was was lurking there um yeah, totally. And and I think also your your framework around moving from like the head to the the heart and realizing that some of the some of the surface level conflicts actually stem from more deeper conflicts of values and that having the discussion on that level feels more productive than like almost like a stalemate where you're just kind of um, playing like ping pong back and forth on the on the more heady level. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you know, this, I've noticed that people that have podcasts you know, like yourself um, are actually practicing many of the things in the book in terms of like inviting perspectives and asking stories uh, mm. and sort of exploring these things. And so I think even just the fact that you're doing a podcast is going to change you and potentially um, sort of give you new skills on that on that front too. So and I think even if you did nothing, there might mm. be progress there. Yeah, I, I think it already has. And I think a big part of it is also learning to learning to listen beyond just waiting for your chance to speak. I think that's kind of a yeah. big part of it. And that's definitely a skill that I've been trying to get better at. Um, yeah. And again, I think that comes back to just having those 
projections of what you think the other person's going to say before they even say it. And you, you miss out on so much of the, of the information. Um, but yeah, it feels like a very rich territory for me to explore. So uh, yeah, thank you for writing this book. It's, it's genuinely, genuinely incredible. Awesome. Thank you. And I'm sure you're already on the path. So you know, <laughs> you've made plenty of progress. Um, but yeah, <laughs> just to copy um, at that again. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> so where, where, <laughs> where, where would be the best place for listeners to, um, to find out more, maybe engage in some of these experiments? Um, what would you yeah. Think? Letter.wiki is a great place. Um, I definitely would love to have more, you know, back and forth about different topics there. Um, and I'm just, you just search for Buster Benson. Um, at Buster on Twitter, BusterBenson.com. You know, I'm on the internet, I think, and generally inviting disagreements. So if anything pops out, um, I want to have those conversations. Mm, amazing. Okay, well, um, it feels very appropriate to close with uh, the real K line. Um, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. And with that in mind, what is the question that you're living yourself right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? And I should have really thought about this more. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> let me give, give me a second. What is the question I'm living right now? I have one that I don't know if I can articulate it quite right yet, but I am... I've spent a lot of my time, um, you know, in this postmodernist state of dismantling these belief systems, um, and sort of living in the atomized world, as David Chapman would say, like of like meanings all disconnected and flying around and hit puncturing us. Um, I think I'm becoming convinced that we need a new ideology um, that combines the psychotechnologies of religion and science and mm. um, psychology and communication and game theory and cooperation and economics and um, that a new, some, you know, ideology is sort of a bad word, but like whatever that is that can contain all those things and provide us the structure that we need to actually function because we just threw out all those tools. Um, and so I guess my question is like, hmm. what is the new ideology that we need to build um, or how can we start building it without having to define it first um, uh, and in time to uh, prevent us from just destroying ourselves. <laughs> hmm. Wow, okay, all right. Well, thank you so much, Buster, and we will wrap the show with that. Thank you, it's always a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.